0: It's a love that makes me see. On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help
1: us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 4, we're back in uh, verses 25 through 32, finishing up this section uh, this morning, Lord willing. You never know (laughs) what could happen. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, if you'll follow along as I begin reading now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, where we read, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word and our time together in it. You may be seated. I'm sure you're very much aware that uncontrolled anger is just a massive problem in our society today. I mean, we frequently read about, uh, and most of us have probably even witnessed incidents of road rage. According to USA Today, 554 people were shot in road rage incidents in the U.S. in, in 2022, and 141 of those shootings ended in death. In 2022, someone was shot in a road rage incident every 16 hours. There's been a 500% increase in reported cases of road rage over the last 10 years. And then we have the issue of parents at youth sporting events who often erupt in anger and rage that leads to physical violence and even death. In fact, the violence of parents at their kids' sports games is now so prevalent that it even has its own name youth sports rage. And youth sports rage can be described as any physical attack upon another person, such as striking, wounding, or otherwise, otherwise touching in an offensive manner, and or any malicious verbal abuse or sustained harassment which threatens subsequent violence or bodily harm within the context of organized athletic activity. Sports rage. It's frequent here in the United States. Uh, one study found that, that parents and, and other spe- spectators routinely yell and threaten referee, yell at and threaten referees and coaches. At times, there's also real aggression. mean, Parents hit each other. They swear at the sports officials and at each other. They threaten violence, assault the coaches, biting their ears off, literally. Almost 70% of parents admit that they've been angry at least once during their child's sports event, but it's those blind umpires. Obviously, I've been angry at a child's sporting event. I'm not proud of it, but I have been. Most parents who have attended a youth sporting event have witnessed other parents being verbally abusive. In fact, I read that one in seven have witnessed an actual physical altercation involving a parent, and I've seen it myself saw two mothers get in a fist fight, rolling around on the grass, beating each other because one said something about the other's son during a, while they were playing baseball. Another incident that I know of, we weren't present, but uh, one father stabbed another father at a baseball game. I mean, this is a very real issue because this is an angry, hostile, bitter, unforgiving, vengeful society because that's in the human heart. You know, you did something to me, well, I'm going to get you back. That's just how it goes with fallen man, and it starts from the time that we're, we're the smallest children. I mean, something happens to that toddler, uh, you know, that he, does, he or she doesn't like, and they will angrily react. And that's the innate fallenness of the human heart. You may think, well, whew, boy, that's the world for you. I mean, But you would be naive to think that Christians are exempt from anger. The anger and malice which Paul condemns is a problem in the local church as well. Angry, bitter people often split churches, usually under the false pretense of maintaining doctrinal purity. Christian homes are often torn apart by anger. Marriages are torn apart by anger. But sinful anger in all its forms and the sins associated with it belong to the old man unbelievers who walk in the futility of their minds and and are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You know, those who have become callous, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that was each one of us before salvation, but we were born again. You know, given new life, now we're new creatures in Christ, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, verse 24 tells us. And as such, Paul has told us that we're to put off the, the old life with all its sinful patterns and practices, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and put on the new self in Christ, which includes a different mindset and a different lifestyle. And in this section that we've been looking at now for four weeks, Paul has been giving us examples of what our conduct as Christians should look like. Verse 25, he commands us not to lie, but to speak the truth. Verses 26 and 27, he commands us not uh, to be angry, you know, the righteous anger, but not to sin when we are angry. In verse 28, he commands us not to steal, but to work hard in order to give and to help those in need. In verse 29, he commanded us to speak, not to speak what is corrupt and harmful, but what is good and builds up. And then in the middle of these examples of what our conduct as Christians should be, last week in verse 30, Paul commanded us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And now in the final two verses of this section, Paul returns to the subject of anger, which he touched on in verse 26. And he focuses on five different aspects of sinful anger, together with the malice that so often characterizes them all. And even though in verse 26 Paul recognizes there is a place for righteous anger, the fact that he mentions anger again so soon after verse 26 suggests, as one man said, that to be angry without sinning is as rare as it is difficult. And so as is fitting for those who are new creatures in Christ, Paul says that we must put away all sinful anger in all of its forms. And Paul makes three points uh, in the verses we're going to be looking at this morning, verses uh, 31 and 32, he makes three points. First, he gives us six sinful, unchristlike attitudes that are rela- all related to anger that are to be put away. Second, he gives us three Christlike attitudes that are to be cultivated. And then finally, he gives us the motive or the reason why we are to cultivate these attitudes. And to point out the obvious before we actually get into the text, I mean, Paul. Commands, his commands here imply that uh, we've been wronged or mistreated. Because we wouldn't be bitter if people treated us right. We, we wouldn't be harboring malice if others had been kind to us. And we wouldn't need to forgive if others had not sinned against us or wronged us. And the commands which Paul gives here are given to Christians. To the church, to believers, the believers in Ephesus. Because unbelievers neither desire to obey them, nor are they able to do so. But Paul assumes that Christians have been given the means to obey these commands, which we have been by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so Paul is showing us how to respond in a Christ-like manner when people have wronged us or sinned against us. Look now, if you will, at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So now that you're in Christ, the new creation in Christ, you must put away all these things. The thoughts, attitudes, motives, and behaviors of the old life, let all of them be put away, he says. And the Greek word translated put away is a very strong word that basically means to reject to personally strip off. And it was, this was a word that was commonly used for stripping off filthy, dirty clothes. It was also used metaphorically for the removing of evil. And so Paul's words picture someone stripping off a dirty or, or badly stained garment. So he's telling believers to take off the old garments of sin and, and to get rid of these sins. In other words, we're to to strip off the sinful habits that belong to the old man, the old life, like a set of tattered, worn out, dirty old clothes. I mean, when someone is born again, we expect to see the evidence of that in their personal behavior and in their daily conduct. And so Paul says, put all these sins away. You know, just as a runner must lay aside There in Hebrews 12, and it's the same word. Lay aside is the same word as put away here. So just as a runner must lay aside every weight and sin to run a successful race, so a believer must put away or put off all these sins in order to live the Christian life in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And notice that he says all. Let all these things be put away. It's comprehensive. It allows for no exception. It emphasizes totality. Paul says, put them all away, you know, get rid of all these sins that characterized your former life. The first sinful attitude which Paul commands us to put away is bitterness. Let all bitterness be put away. Phillips translates this word bitterness as resentment. The, The New English Bible translates it spite. Barclay defines this as long-standing resentment, you know, a a spirit which refuses to be reconciled. This word bitterness reflects a smoldering resentment, a a brooding, grudge-filled attitude. It's the spirit of irritability that that keeps a person in perpetual animosity, making him or her sour and, and venomous. In effect, bitterness is is holding a grudge against someone because of a wrong we believe they committed against us or against someone we love. I mean, bitterness always starts with being personally wronged or personally hurt. And the person who is bitter is often resentful, cynical, harsh, cold, relentless, and really just unpleasant to be around. Any expression of these characteristics is sin against God. They are of the flesh, not of his spirit. And if I understand the scriptures correctly, certain sins are considered root sins, while others are the fruit. For example, greed or the love of money is a root sin, and it's the source of, of many other sins. Pride would be another root sin. Well, bitterness is also. A root sin. In fact, in Hebrews 12.15, the writer says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You know, bitterness will defile. I mean, not only yourself, but also others who are close to you. It, it will just eat you alive. I mean, it's that state of mind that willfully holds on to angry feelings, ready to take offense, able to to break out at any moment. And the danger in giving in to bitterness and allowing it to rule our hearts is that it's a spirit that refuses reconciliation. And so as a result, bitterness leads to wrath, which is the explosion on the outside of the feelings inside. And that is why wrath is the second sinful attitude which Paul commands us to put away. Put away all wrath. Wrath is translated passion by the New English Bible and bad temper by the Berkeley version. Barclay translates it outbursts of passion. The NIV translates it rage. This word wrath has to do with wild rage, the, the passion of the moment, you know, passionate outbursts. This word was used to describe the people in the synagogue at Nazareth whose rage at Jesus drove them to try to throw Him over the edge of a cliff in Luke 4. It's used of the rage of the mob in Ephesus that led to the riot against the Christians there in Acts 19. This term refers to anger boiling over. It is uncontrolled rage expressed through sudden explosive outbursts which are common practice to those with bad tempers And less frequent with others. I mean, this this is when anger just comes spewing out and it always leaves casualties in its way. I mean, these violent, explosive eruptions of temper are destructive, and very often the angry words which are spoken at such times are regretted and often do great damage to relationships. So, this speaks of those times when you just explode. Have you ever done that? I'm sure none of you ever have. <laughs> and we should never try to excuse this sin by making it a personality trait. Like, well, that's just the way I am. That's the you know, way I was born that way. That's the way I am. So, no. Don't try to excuse this by making it a personality trait. Don't try to excuse it by making it a cultural trait. Well, you know, I'm Irish, and that's just the way we Irish are. Or whatever. I'm not picking on the Irish. Don't try to excuse this sin by making it a personality trait or a cultural trait. Paul says it's a work of the flesh. And it's not acceptable behavior for Christians. The third sinful attitude Paul commands us to put away is anger. Anger. The word translated here as anger does not refer to an explosive outburst of anger, but rather to a, a growing inner anger, a, a deep smoldering emotion that's boiling uh, you know, below the surface, uh, the surface. In fact, it's translated long-lived anger by Barclay. And so it's an anger that only the Lord and the believer know about. And it's especially dangerous then because it can be harbored privately in the heart where it just simmers and defiles. And if wrath has a hair trigger and is highly volatile, anger is is less explosive, less violent, but much longer in duration. It's the slow and, and gradual rising of emotion which increases to a white heat like that of a roaring fire. And often those full of anger savor the the sinful satisfaction of making people pay over a long period of time. I mean, this is more premeditated while wrath is more spontaneous. It's the hard attitude of, of the angry person. As one man said, provocations do not create his anger, but merely reveal that he is an angry person and give him a target for his fury. And that has no place in the Christian's life. Rather, believers are to be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I mean, anger in itself is a proper emotion if it is controlled by the Holy Spirit and is exercised for holy reasons. Uh, As we've learned, there is such a thing as righteous anger, a righteous indignation. But don't think for one moment that that is a justification for having a habitual short fuse. True righteous indignation is much more rare than people would care to admit. The fourth sinful attitude to be put away is clamor, clamor. It's translated noisiness by Berkeley and quarrelsome shouting by F.F. Bruce. The 20th century New Testament translates it brawling and abusive language. This word is used of the sound of a loud scream or shout. It can mean a a shout of joy as in Luke chapter 1 verse 42, uh, it can be a cry of weeping, as in Revelation 21.4, or the shouting of people back and forth in a quarrel, as in Acts 23.9. One man explains that this is the, the loud self-assertion of the angry person who will make everyone hear their grievances. Clamor. It's related to and flows from anger. It refers to loud, angry words where people are screaming and shouting at each other. It includes cursing and calling each other abusive names. And it becomes louder and louder as well as more and more animated. Clamor depicts our speech at its loudest and most animated levels. It's Really, it's a public outburst that reveals the loss of self-control. Paul says, put it away put it all the way, every last bit of it. The fifth sinful attitude Paul commands us to put away is slander, slander. Slander is the stock and trade of the devil. The Greek word translated slander is the word from which we get our English word blasphemy. And when it's used in relation to God, it's translated blasphemy. When used in relation to people, as here, it's translated slander, But as one man said, to slander people, however, is to blaspheme God inasmuch as he created men and women in his image. What is slander? Basically, any ill speech that harms, or any speech that harms another person's status or reputation. It's malicious gossip, backbiting, defaming another behind their back. It's running others down verbally. It's speech that deliberately assaults the character of other persons by degrading them. It's speaking lies about someone in order to injure them. It's often driven by the desire for revenge. And the aim of slander is often promoting oneself at the expense of the one slandered. And often slander is accompanied by falsehood where we stretch the truth or only give enough information so to tilt the the verdict uh, or the witnesses in our direction. I mean, how common this is in our pagan society. I mean, there is no longer any shame whatsoever towards blaspheming the Lord's name or or slandering others. In fact, our entire media is given over to this. But these things ought to be removed from a Christian's life. Paul says, put it away. Strip it off like a filthy, dirty garment. I mean, Peter also said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1: so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Slander. And I have to say that of all the sins ever committed against me, slander uh, may be the one that has hurt the most. Because slander harms your reputation. And once you've been slandered, you will never completely remove the impression and lingering doubts will remain. It's a terrible sin. And this is a sin we all should carefully guard against because it is so natural and even enjoyable to our sinful nature. You know, Jesus said that if we have a grievance against another, we should go personally to them and try to work it out, Matthew 18. And often among Christians, this kind of malicious gossip masquerades as, you know, spiritual concern. Oh, I, I, boy, I would never tell you what I know about him or her except that I know you'll want to pray about it. Or, you know, we, we really want to pray for so-and-so. Oh, why is that? Oh, well, let me tell you. It happened. It happens. And so if you want to join uh, the devil's uh, attack against the gospel and the church, then the first thing you should do is spread gossip and innuendo about other Christians or about the church. But don't do it. And we don't take this sin seriously enough in the church today. But listen, this kind of thing sinks down and it poisons your soul. It destroys your love. It divides the body. It reduces your appetite for God and the Word. And therefore, it hinders your spiritual growth to say nothing of grieving the Holy Spirit of God. All these things, all these sins, grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, slander is incompatible with the new birth. It should should not have any place in the lives of those who are born again. Paul says, put it away, you know, just get rid of it. And then he adds, number six, along with all malice, all malice. The word translated malice means badness or wickedness. It's a a general term for moral evil, moral badness, speaks of a viciousness of mind. It implies a desire for bad, evil, or wicked things to happen to others. And really it has to do with a, a desire in the heart. The malicious person desires and determines to injure or harm others with words or deeds. It's it's the attitude which actively seeks to bring harm to another. You know, harming his person or reputation or his relationship with others. The malicious person is often possessed by a desire to get revenge. And in one sense, it is shocking to think that believers who have been loved by God and dealt with so mercifully by the judge of all the earth would have malice in their hearts toward other believers. But it happens. It happens. And as long as someone has this kind of vengeful spirit, they will, they will never be able to grow spiritually or serve God effectively. Paul writes all malice. You know, he said all at the beginning of the verse, but he says it again with malice. He's serious about this. All malice. You know, that is malice of all kinds. No trace of malice in any of its forms belongs to the lifestyle of those created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul says, put all these things, you know, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, uh, all of these sinful things, along with all malice, put all these things away. Every one of them, no exception. As one man said, these evils are like cancer cells. They perform no good or healthy functions. They only bring suffering and ultimately death. And so when we operate or radiate or chemically treat cancer cells, we are satisfied with nothing less than the total eradication of every cell. So it is, he said, with these evils. Every hint of them is to be cast aside as evil and destructive. Well, the fact of the matter is, Christians will and do struggle with these things. And I doubt there is one person sitting here this morning who does not have cause to seriously reflect on at least one of these, and perhaps more than one. I mean, these are the sins that break fellowship and destroy relationships, that weaken the church and even split churches, and then, of course, mar the church's testimony before the world. And the fact is, when we were born again, I mean, these things were not automatically removed from our lives. We wish they were, but they weren't. But by the grace and strength which God supplies, we must apply ourselves to remove these sinful attitudes from our lives. And if we would take these seriously and really repent, you know, confess but not only confess, confess and forsake these sins, it would absolutely revolutionize our lives, our marriages, our families, and thus our church. And so Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But as we've seen, it's never enough for Christians merely to put away or put off sin. That's, that's moralism. Moralism never saves. Moralism fails. Our calling is to put away sin, you know, put away all the things in verse 31, but then to put on or to begin practicing godly behavior. And now in verse 32, we see that the sinful attitudes of verse 31 are to be replaced with kindness, tender-heartedness. And forgiveness. We're to put off all the things in verse 31 and then put these things on. And these are qualities which characterize the behavior of our Lord Jesus himself. Look at verse 32. Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Greek word translated be means to become. The type of word it is in the Greek indicates an ongoing process. And so the way for us to remove the bad sinful attitudes is to cultivate their opposites. By the grace and strength that God supplies, we're to work on becoming the opposite of the things in verse 31. So we put those off, and then we work at becoming these things in verse 32. It doesn't do any good just to put the others off. We also have to put these on. As the early church father John Chrysostom said, asked, what good is it to weed a garden if we do not plant good seed? To be free from a bad habit does not mean we have formed a good one. We need to take the further step of forming good habits and dispositions. And this shows us the difference between mere moralism and Christianity and why moralism fails. Christianity is not just saying no to sin. And there are a lot of moralists in the church today They believe they're Christians just because they say no to certain things, certain activities. That's not Christianity. That's moralism. And moralism doesn't save, and moralism fails. Christianity is not just saying no to sin. Christianity says no to sin, but also yes to God. And yes to the life and lifestyle he calls us to live. We put off the sinful behavior and begin practicing godly behavior in its place, living according to God and true righteousness and holiness. And the first characteristic Paul tells us to cultivate in our lives is kindness. Notice he says, be kind to one another. Literally, keep on becoming kind toward one another. And in this day of entitlement and self-promotion and impersonal virtual relationships, many people have forgotten what it means to be kind to one another. To be kind. In the Greek word translated kind means fitting, good, pleasant, loving, merciful, benevolent. It refers to a gracious disposition toward others which reaches out through acts that that demonstrate compassion and mercy. It's it's grace in action. It is a sweetness of disposition, a desire for the good of others, an, an unselfish concern for the welfare of others, and a desire to be helpful. And it's always ready to show compassion, especially to those in need. Like Jesus, it is touched and moved by the needs of others. Kindness takes the initiative in responding generously to others' needs. So it's not only, kindness not only feels generous, it actually is generous. It not only desires the good of others, but it actually works for it. It does kind, helpful things for others to the point of loving self sacrifice when necessary. It responds to others with the same kindness and tender heart that God has shown to us in Christ. I mean, we should be a people known for our kindness to one another because of the great depth of God's kindness that has been shown to each one of us. Luke 6.35 tells us God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God's kindness brought us to repentance, Romans 2.4. Paul tells us, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. And it's impossible to read the four Gospels and not be impressed with Jesus' kindness. I mean, especially uh, to the poor and the needy, the the, the down and the outcast. Because we as believers have received kindness, we therefore are to act with kindness toward others. I mean, kindness should characterize our lives with one another. I mean, it's the extension of God's grace to people around us through practical actions of caring. Kindness, one man said, can heal the hurts of the world as well as the hurts in your family. Let me ask you, you know, those of you who are married, are you kind to your spouse? I mean, are you really kind to your spouse? It doesn't take any more energy to be kind than it does to be bitter. Are you kind to your spouse? Let me ask you parents. Are you kind to your children? Or are they just an annoyance to you and you just, you know, buy them off? Are you kind to your children? Let me ask You young people, or maybe not only young people, but all of us who have parents still living. Are you kind to your parents? Are you kind to your parents? We are to honor our parents. And that would include being kind to them. So when others think about you, do they characterize you as being kind? When they think of you, do they think, man, that is a kind person? Or do they think, man, that person is rude, sarcastic, critical? We're to be kind. The Bible says, and therefore God says, that love, speaking of biblical love, is kind. I mean, kindness doesn't come naturally. I mean, it can't be produced from our own innate resources, but rather it's a fruit of the Spirit. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to live the lives that are characterized by kindness. I mean, this is an important virtue of God that Paul wants believers to imitate in living a life of love. Kindness is utterly inconsistent with the sinful attitudes in verse 31. We are to be kind. And it's in short supply. Don't see much kindness in the world and sadly, uh, you're seeing less and less of it in the church. We're to be kind. Were to be coming kind. The second characteristic Paul tells us to cultivate in our lives is being tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. It's the opposite of having a hard heart that, that is unaffected by the difficulties and sorrows and, and needs of others. Now, the word translated tender-hearted means, really means compassionate. It's the same word Peter used in 2 Peter 3.8 when he said, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. This word depicts feelings that, that appear to come from our inner parts. In fact, uh, in biblical times, uh, this was literally uh, you know literally something from our bowels, which they or our intestines, which they saw as the seat of our emotion. So it depicts feelings that appear to come from our inner parts, especially when we observe the suffering which another person endures. That's why translators usually associate this Greek word with the heart and translate it tender-hearted. It means having a heart sensitive to the needs and the feelings of others, to have genuine concern for another person's well-being. But this is more than simply feeling or, or being touched by another believer's pain or suffering. Now It goes beyond just sharing in their feelings. This, this is heartfelt compassion. And this heartfelt compassion emphasizes the actions taken to reach out to the hurting. It, it does what it can to meet the need. It looks for weaknesses and needs, not, not in order to capitalize on them, but in order to minister to those people. I mean, this is love and sympathy in action. It's caring about the other person and actually doing something to help. One man said, it means that you have not come to the sorry conclusion that life is a hard and terrible business, that it is every man for himself, that you are going to live for yourself and that you really cannot give your time and energy to others and their problems. Now that is the attitude that you've got to put away. And the opposite of that is to become tender-hearted. This means that you are concerned about other people and that you can feel for others, that you are sympathetic towards others, that you have got a great heart of compassion towards them, that indeed you can see so much the troubles of others that you forget your own troubles. I mean, to be tender-hearted is to feel for others and understand their troubles and then seek to help them and to meet the need. But as one commentator wisely warned, being tender-hearted is not being soft-hearted. And there's a difference. Let me explain. The soft-hearted person is easily fooled. You know, they react emotionally without considering what is best for the person. And they always want to rescue. They always want to step in to meet needs. They, they fail to think through their actions. They don't take into account what is the most loving thing to, uh, what the most loving thing to actually do is. They don't don't understand that sometimes the most loving thing to do may be to say no to someone. To not help or support someone in a way uh, uh, they want to do. And our compassion and our love for others is to be an intelligent love. In Philippians 1, 9, and 10, uh, Paul said, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. I mean, So there are times when it's not good to help someone or rescue them because they need to feel the sting of their actions so they'll grow up. It could be the situation is such that if you help them or keep helping them, you know, keep rescuing them, you may only be enabling them to keep doing the wrong thing and to keep going in the wrong direction. And in the end, it will be disastrous. And you will be partially responsible. Sometimes not helping a person is the most loving thing that you can do. Because again, they need to feel the sting to, to change, to repent, to become responsible, to grow up. And this is where prayer is, is so very important. We're to be tender-hearted and compassionate. That's our default position. Yet at the same time, we're We're praying. You know, we're seeking God for discernment and for wisdom to know what is the best way for love to be exercised. And it may be in a way that doesn't look so loving to onlookers who don't know all the details, but it is the best thing. God didn't rescue the prodigal son, did he? He let his life fall completely apart first. It was best for him. Why? It brought him to the end of himself. He came to his senses and in brokenness and contrition, what did he do? He turned and went to the Father's house and he repented. I mean, we want to be tender-hearted. But we also want to do what is best for that person and sometimes that may be tough love. Now having shared that, the difference between tender-hearted and soft-hearted, don't use being soft-hearted as an excuse not to help someone. I've seen that too. Christians who didn't really want to help anybody to begin with use that as an excuse. Well, you know, I, I don't want to interrupt what God may be doing in their life. Well, that's all, That borders on being karma, almost. So don't use that as, as an excuse not to help. And there's a lot of that that goes on. We want to be tenderhearted. We want to do what's best for the person. But on occasion, that may be uh, tough love. You know, in these days, in these days when uh, our television screens are filled with all kinds of terrible pain and cruelty and agony and suffering, it's so easy to become immune to it all and, and to become unfeeling, cold, and callous. And we can act as if these terrible things don't even happen. But that's not the spirit of the Lord Jesus. I mean, believers are always to have a tender heart toward those in need. I mean, we live in a hard world. A hard world. And so what a difference it makes to be compassionate. What a difference it makes to show sympathy, offer an encouraging word, and and to meet needs. I mean, that is one of the best ways that we can uh, present the love of Christ in a very practical way to the world. You know, in Mark 141, uh we read that Jesus was moved with pity, and, and that is why He healed so many people and ultimately took away our sins by dying on the cross. You know, our unbelieving, secular, humanistic world is marked by its lack of feeling and lack of care and concern. But as Christians, we're to be known by our tender hearts. And the third characteristic Paul tells us to cultivate in our lives is Forgiveness. Paul says we are to be forgiving one another. And the word forgive translates a Greek word that literally means to be gracious. You know, it conveys the idea that forgiving others is an act of grace, freely offered, often not deserved. And this word for forgiveness emphasizes the gracious nature of forgiveness that you do not forgive because someone earns your forgiveness, but you do it out of love because you too have received the grace of forgiveness. The text literally literally reads, Forgiving yourselves. Forgiving yourselves. Now, don't misinterpret that. It's not saying forgiving yourself. It's not biblical. It's not saying forgiving yourself, singular. This is plural. It's forgiving yourselves. In other words, one another. It's forgiving yourselves. That's why the ESV translates it, Forgiving one another. Paul's point is that the church as a whole is to be a gracious, mutually forgiving fellowship. And certainly there are times in the life of the church when we wrong one another. And that's inevitable as fallen people still being sanctified. And Paul recognized that there will be times in the church that a person will have a complaint against someone else within the fellowship because we all sin. And we've all been sinned against. And the deeper that you have been hurt, the more difficult it is to truly forgive. You know, C.S. Lewis said, Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. But when we have been sinned against by another believer, Paul says that we're to be forgiving one another. I mean, we all need forgiveness. And therefore, we all need to grant forgiveness. So let's talk about forgiveness for a moment. While compassion involves our feelings, forgiveness is primarily a conscious decision you make. It's a conscious decision of the will. You choose to forgive someone, and the feelings may follow. And so forgiveness is a deliberate decision you must make. You choose to forgive someone. But forgiving someone does not mean you no longer feel the pain of their offense. In most cases, the only way that you can stop hurting is to stop feeling, and the only way that you can stop feeling is to die emotionally. And the pain of some sins will probably never entirely dissipate. They may last a lifetime, but God's grace over time is a great healer. And choosing to forgive someone means you refuse by God's grace to let the anger and pain energize an agenda to exact payment from that person, whether that payment be emotional, relational, physical, or financial. It also means you refuse to use your past suffering to justify present sin. One man said, forgiveness is deciding to live with the painful consequences of another's sin. You are going to have to live with it anyway, so you might as well do it without the bitterness and rancor and hatred that threaten to destroy your soul. Forgiving someone who sinned against you also does not mean you cease desiring that justice be served. To desire justice is entirely legitimate, but to seek it for yourself is not. Forgiveness simply means that you determine in your heart to let God be the avenger because he is the judge, not you. You let God deal with the offender in his own way at the appropriate time because he's much better at it than you or I. Forgiving others means we resolve to reject revenge and we leave vengeance in the hands of God. And don't, you know, I don't want anybody thinking, well, does that mean we as Christians can't defend ourselves? No, that's, that's not even what this is talking about. We're talking about relational forgiveness between two people. Of course you have a right to defend yourself and your family and your property. Secondly, to forgive someone is also to promise not to bring the offense up again to use it against them. The contrary to what many have been led to believe, forgiveness is not forgetting. You know, forgive and forget, we've been told, Uh, by so many through the years. That's a nice saying, but it's totally misleading. Believers, we must forgive like Christ did. But Jesus doesn't forget because he can't forget anything. If he could literally forget, it would undermine the truth of his omniscience. He always has and always will know all things past, present, and future. When scripture says he remembers our sins no more, it simply means that he no longer holds it against us or treats us as if the reality of our sin were present in his mind. And he has canceled the debt and will never demand payment. We are no longer held liable for our sins or in any way made to pay for them. And so are you holding on to a record of wrongs? You know, are you holding on to past sins that someone has committed against you? You know, one of the first things that should identify us as Christians is our Christ-like forgiveness. Forgiveness means we resolve never to throw the sin back into the face of the one who committed it. And that is always much easier said than done. Number three, forgiving someone also means refusing to think about the offense, constantly dwelling upon it. It means not bringing it up to ourselves as grounds for self-pity or to justify our resentment of the person who hurt us. To forgive also means refusing to talk to others about the offense. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. Forgiving means refusing to talk to others about the offense. If you say you forgive someone and then you tell others about the offense, then what you're doing is attempting to justify yourself or to undermine the offender's reputation. Or you're trying to evoke sympathy or admiration from others at the offender's expense. You know, you're you're trying to make the offender pay, which is not forgiveness. Number four, when we forgive others, we should also seek to restore the broken relationship. Now, this does not always mean becoming best of friends, but it should at least mean that we are cordial and friendly towards the person. I mean, my goodness, as believers, we're going to spend eternity together. To say, I forgive you, but I never want to see your ugly face again, I mean, that's that's not to forgive as God forgives, right? (laughs) And of course, if the offender doesn't truly repent of their sin well, then we cannot be truly reconciled or in a close relationship. And true forgiveness is not satisfied with uh, simply canceling the debt. It, It longs to love again. And it's important to remember two things here. First, the offending person may refuse and resist any efforts on your part to reconcile, but that is ultimately out of your control. As Paul said in Romans 12.18, your responsibility is to do whatever you can within your power to be at peace. If they refuse to be at peace with you, the fault is theirs. You will at least have fulfilled your responsibility before God. And second, oftentimes when the reconciliation or restoration is successful, the relationship never fully returns to what it was before the offense was committed. Because trust and confidence and delight in another person take a long time to fully recover from a a serious sin. Once those things are destroyed, it takes a long time to recover from them. And sometimes they may never fully recover at all. But even if it doesn't, that doesn't mean you you haven't fully forgiven them. Number five, forgiveness does not mean that you're to make it easy for the offender to hurt you again. And they may, in fact, hurt you again. I mean, that's their decision. So you must set parameters on your friendship as to how and to what extent you interact with this person in the future. Because forgiveness does not mean you become a helpless and passive doormat for their continual sin. And then finally, forgiveness is rarely a one-time climactic event. It is most often a, a lifelong process. In fact, you know, It is, just like repenting. We never repent once and never have to repent again. The Christian life is a life of repentance. It's also a life of forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness has to begin somewhere, at at some point in life. There will undoubtedly be a moment, an act, when you decisively choose to forgive it may well be highly emotional and spiritually intense. It bring immediate relief, you know, a sense of release and freedom. But that doesn't necessarily mean you'll never need to do it again. You may need every day to reaffirm to yourself your forgiveness of someone. And each time you, you see the person, you may need to say, self, remember, you forgave them. I mean, if only the church would practice this. only believers would practice this, I mean, how it would transform lives, marriages, families, and again, thus the church. As Christians, uh, we are new creations in Christ. We're we're able to be people known for kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. In the last few words in verse 32, Paul tells us why. Why we must forgive. We must forgive one another. Look at the last part of verse 32, as God and Christ forgave you. You know, we've been sinned against by another believer, the standard for forgiveness is divine forgiveness. As God and Christ forgave you. Or as Paul said in the parallel passage in Colossians 3.13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgive as God and Christ forgave you. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot. Especially when you consider what Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the number seven was not, was not to set a limit on the number of times to forgive. Precisely the opposite. The opposite. Jesus meant that forgiveness is to be granted unendingly. And believers who are bitter bear grudges and uh, and fail to forgive. You know, if you're bitter, you're bearing a grudge, failing to forgive. Well, let me tell you something you are inviting God's divine chastening. And believers who fail to forgive will not be forgiven. Jesus made that teaching uh, clear, uh, or made that clear in his teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, where he said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, the Lord was not speaking of the eternal forgiveness believers have through justification. This is not a salvation issue. The sort of forgiveness he's speaking about here is a simple washing from the worldly defilements of sin, not a, not a repeat of the wholesale cleansing from sin's corruption that comes at salvation. It's, it's, it's like a, a washing of the feet rather than a bath. That's the way Jesus put it in, in John 13. And this is what God threatens to withhold from Christians who refuse to forgive others. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is it will affect your relationship with God, your intimacy, your fellowship, your communion with God. That's the big deal. And that is a big deal. And not only that, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And As one man said, the emptiness, depression, dullness, and lack of assurance and joy many Christians experience is often due to withheld blessings as a result of chastening for an unforgiving heart. So that's what God threatens to to withhold from believers who refuse to forgive others. You see, loved ones, vertical forgiveness should result in horizontal forgiveness. If Christ has forgiven believers of so much, then we we should forgive each other of so little. You say, well, it's not a little thing. Oh, yeah, it is. I don't care what it is. It's a little thing compared to the mountain of sin. You, you and I sinned against God, and He forgave us. As one man said, His forgiveness, God's forgiveness, is for time and eternity. Ours is only for time. His embrace, both the quality and the quantity of sins. There is no sin which He has not graciously forgiven And we're to follow the example set by Jesus who has graciously forgiven each one of us. And listen, God did not love us, choose us, and redeem us because we were deserving, but purely because He is gracious. And God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We didn't deserve God's forgiveness, not for one moment. But he provided provided for it and granted it freely in Christ at great cost to himself. He paid the price, but he doesn't make us pay. God forgave us by his grace, not because we, we deserved it. God forgave us at great cost. He forgave us in Christ, and God forgave us far, far more than we will ever forgive anyone else. And His forgiveness means total acceptance, reconciliation, and restored fellowship with us. And so if God is gracious to us, and He is, how much more then should we be forgiving to one another? You know, can we who have been forgiven so much not forgive the relatively small things done against us? I mean, we have all people, should always be ready and and willing to forgive. We should be a people known for kindness and forgiveness based on the depth of the kindness and forgiveness that God has shown to us in Christ. And if Christ can forgive us, then there's nothing for which we should not forgive one another. You don't want to be like the ungrateful servant who has forgiven millions. And then he he went and had a a poor guy that, that he worked with thrown in prison over a few bucks. And we know what the master did to him. You don't want to be like the unforgiving servant. Christ forgave us. There's nothing for which we should not forgive another person. Sure, there may be consequences for actions. And there often are. Some last for a lifetime. But we're to be a forgiving people. You know, Jesus taught us to dwell on how He forgave our infinite debt and then to be quick to forgive others when they sin against us. Read Matthew 6.12, 14 and 15. Matthew 18.21-35. And Luke 6.36. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are to be merciful even as our Father is merciful. And not to forgive is, is, not, is to not rightly understand or appreciate Christ's forgiveness. General James Oglethorpe, British soldier, a member of parliament and philanthropist, once said to John Wesley, I never forgive and I never forget. To which Wesley replied, and sir, I hope you never sin. Because we all sin, we all need forgiveness, and we all need to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Forgiveness is essential to maintain close relationships and fellowship within the church. I mean, we're, we're to be gracious to one another. We're to be gracious to one another just as God is gracious to us. We're to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave each one of us. But, you know, none of this will make sense to someone who has not experienced and received and tasted the joy of the forgiveness of God in Christ. I mean, you cannot give what you have not first received. You cannot give forgiveness that we're talking about if you haven't first received the forgiveness of God in Christ. You can only forgive others as as God forgave us, only after we have received the forgiveness of God in Christ. I mean, we love because He first loved us. We also forgive because He first forgave us. And so I want to ask you this morning, as kindly and yet as directly as I can. You know, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? You know, have you experienced the forgiveness of your sin because you've trusted in Christ alone for salvation? You know, if you don't have the the joy of, of knowing that your sins are forgiven, then I want to urge you to receive God's forgiveness by. Trusting in Christ alone as your only hope of salvation. And I would urge you to do it today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You know, as believers, we've freely received grace from God through the sacrificial work of Christ. And so we're called likewise to show grace and and forgive others who have wronged us, sinned against us. And as Christians, we must never say, I cannot forgive. Because if we say that, what what we must mean is, I will not forgive. We can choose to disobey God's command through Paul. And we can refuse to forgive and to continue to harbor bitterness and resentment, but we must never say that we cannot forgive because it's impossible to do. Because God has forgiven us in Christ, and so the work of Jesus Christ in our life makes it possible. What we will not and cannot do through our old nature, we can do through the new nature which God has given us. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit by His enabling and empowering that forgiveness and reconciliation can be accomplished. We might seek to justify ourselves by pointing to the enormity of the sin which someone has committed against us. But again, you know, whatever that sin may be, It doesn't measure up to the sins that we have committed against God and which He has forgiven us in Christ. Now, we may refuse to forgive because we're convinced that the offending party will only sin in a similar way again. Well, so do we. How many times do we come to God to confess a sin which we have confessed many, many times before only to repeat it again? You see, as we begin to, to fathom, as we begin to grasp the, the immensity of our sins and then the magnitude of God's gracious forgiveness, we're going to be motivated to forgive others who've sinned against us. And so loved ones, God wants to, he wants to make us kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. And wouldn't this make all the difference in your life? in my life? And if you became kind, wouldn't it make a wonderful impact on the lives of other people? You know, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers and fellow Christians. And if you became tender-hearted, wouldn't this bring beauty and love into your relationships? And if you are ready and willing to forgive as you have been forgiven, I mean, how transformed your life and your relationships would be. I mean, what greater comfort and joy can we find than to be reminded of our forgiveness in Christ? And what greater motivation can we have for forgiving others? And if we all treated one another as God and Christ has treated us, I mean, just think how different things would be. Just think how different things would be. What are we waiting for? what the Bible tells us to do. This is the way that we're supposed to live. What are we waiting for? You know, we need to begin every day at the foot of the cross, you know, just marveling at at the amazing grace of God. That He sent His own Son to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sins. We need to, to think upon His kindness toward us, His tenderheartedness toward us, and His forgiveness toward us. And as we think upon those things and, and meditate upon them and try to, to grasp them, though really they're incomprehensible, it'll change us. It will change us. It will make us more like Him. Amen? We need to live out our new identity as a new creation in Christ for the good of others and for the glory of God. Amen? Well, may God work these things in all of our hearts and lives. Let's stand and pray.
0: On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. It's your love